Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Inside Andy Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football, recruiting, and more for InsideNDSports.com on the Rivals Network. Quite a bit has happened since we last spoke to you on this podcast. Tyler Buckner was named Notre Dame starting quarterback, wide receiver Avery Davis was lost for the season with a torn ACL. Five-star defensive end Keon Keeley decommitted from the Irish. But the Buckner decision, though it was one that was expected, is where we want to start our podcast conversation today. So we reached out to former five-star quarterback Dane Christ, who played at Notre Dame in Kansas, for some expertise. Dane, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Dane, both Tommy Reese and Marcus Freeman expressed how they felt it was important to name Tyler Buckner as a starter early in camp so the offense could really rally around him. How much do you think that will help Tyler? Uh, I think that's huge. Um, I, I think that that's certainly um, good for the offense um, and, and, you know, just to make sure that they know who they're rallying around. But I think even more importantly, that's important for Tyler. Um, it allows him to, you know, play completely free and not looking over his shoulder um, and just continue to build on, you know, the confidence that he's had thus far in camp um, and really just have a clear focus moving into the season. Dane, you were the last quarterback to open in a coaching era, opening the Brian Kelly era, starting quarterback. I, there was less continuity on that staff going from Charlie's to uh, to Brian's with, uh, I think, Tony Alford being the only holdover. And I'm wondering what that experience was like for you it, uh, opening up under a new coach with a new system and uh, maybe not knowing how that system would hold up against competition. Well, I mean, I think it's interesting, right? And while, you know, we're talking about two different, you know, opening eras, I guess I'll just use your language, right? I think the circumstances were, were wildly different, even, you know, above and beyond the continuity of, of staff, right? Um, I mean, I think just the place that Notre Dame football was in at that point in time, you know, going from Coach Weiss to Coach Kelly, um, was very different and it felt much more like a rebuilding than just kind of picking up the staff and continuing, you know, where those two staffs had left off. Um, so I think, you know, from that perspective, uh, there's certainly going to be a level of excitement about the Marcus Freeman, Marcus Freeman error from the player's perspective. Um, but many of the players on that team, um, you know, have been in a system, are used to winning, Right. Um, so I, I think that makes that transition a bit more easier than really kind of comparing apples to oranges with two completely different staffs, philosophies, mentalities, et cetera. Dane, Dane how, how does life change when you become the starting quarterback at Notre Dame? <laughs> Drastically. Um, you know, I, I remember um, when I was being recruited to Notre Dame, uh, my quarterback coach was Ron Paulus, who's obviously still you know with the program there. And, you know, he shared a line that at any given time you can interview anyone in the United States and they know who the president of the United States is and they know who the quarterback in Notre Dame is. And, and that just kind of stuck. And it was true. And, um, you know, it's just different. It, it's a special, special honor and privilege, um, you know, one that you just cherish and take incredibly serious. Um, so, you know, it's, it's something that it, you're that for the rest of your life. Right. And I think for Tyler and for, you know, Drew Pine and all the other quarterbacks, you know, on that. Um, on that team and on that roster, um, you know, it's it's an incredibly cherished position and, um, you know, something that, you know, I was very fortunate and privileged to um, have been a part of that fraternity. Um, and I know that it's something that, you know, Tyler, I'm sure, is cherishing himself. 
I had a chance to sit down with Tyler one-on-one in July and it was interesting because one of the things he brought up about a highlight of meeting quarterbacks past was you. Now he said it was a brief meeting, but you know, I mean, he was impressed by, he knew who you were. He knew your history. Um, and he was, he was excited that that meeting happened. I'm wondering what your impressions of him are in just that very brief meeting, but more so as a quarterback, uh, what you've been able to see of him. Yeah, well, um, you know, I'll talk about that meeting first and then just some additional context. But uh, my wife, Hillary and I and my son, Holden, uh, were back on campus. We spent Father's Day in South Bend. Um, and so uh, we were there for Father's Day weekend and then stayed through the following week as part of the Golic Family Foundation, you know, golf tournament, and charity tournament. Um, and spent some time, you know, with Tommy, um, you know, and, and just got to really be chaotic with an almost two-year-old just, you know, having chasing him around. Um, and it was, it was great just to catch up with Tommy and Tommy had called uh, Tyler. Tyler came in and, and had a great you know opportunity just to spend a few minutes with him. Um, you know, my first impressions were, you know, he, he's an incredibly impressive young man. Uh, you know, he looks the part. Um, you know, he was in there studying film, you know, on a day in the summer where there was not many people in the building. Right. And I think that just kind of speaks to his level of commitment and seriousness to the program. Um, but what I will say, too, is just obviously Tommy and I have a special relationship and I've um, you know, kept in touch with him over the years. Um, I remember Tommy talking about Tyler, you know, years. It was right after I guess he had come to camp. Um, and, and Tommy had told me at that point in time, Hey, I think we got a really special one. Right. I mean, and just was kind of gushing over him at that point in time. Um, so it was fun for me to then continue to follow him through the rest of his high school career through, you know, committing to Notre Dame and certainly, you know, seeing him play, you know, last year. And, and, um, it was great to have an opportunity to meet him, but I think more than anything, it was all the great things that people had to say about him were very quickly confirmed, um, you know, and, and I appreciated him taking the time to, you know, talk with me and my family. And um, it was good to connect because like I said uh, previously, I mean, this is a really special fraternity. I think he knows this. And I told him when we talked and if there's anything that he ever needed, you know, there's me and everybody else that uh, was in that position before him, you know, are rooting for him, want him to succeed and are here just to be an extension of, of his support system currently. So um, I really enjoyed that time. I uh, look forward to continuing to follow, you know, his success and, uh, just being a resource to him in any way that I can. Dane, Dan, what, what is the value that you think Tommy Reese brings being a former Notre Dame quarterback to be able to help a young quarterback like Tyler along? Well, it's funny because, you know, I, I look at the relationship that Tommy had, even with Ian Book, right. And, and the guys that, um, you know, are, are now in the building, you know, with Tyler, with everybody else. And it's actually very strikingly similar to how I felt about Coach Paulus when, when he was there, um, just because, you know, there's a level of credibility that exists, not just that, hey, you played the position, you know, that comes with that and, and yada, yada, yada. But I mean, really lived it and breathed it every single day, you know, know what it's like walking around campus, knows what it's like, you know, being out in public and, you know, some of those expectations and just things that you can do is that is in that position and things that you can't do. So I think, you know, certainly from an X's and O's standpoint, there's no one in college football better for Tyler to be learning from than Tommy, in my opinion. Um, but just all the other stuff that, you know, Tommy can opine on and offer context and perspective is just going to be huge for Tyler's development, not only as a player, but as a, a person and, you know, young man. Right. Um, so I think that that's all incredibly valuable um and you know very fortunate for Tyler to have a guy like Tommy in that situation 
I got a two part question. The, my first part of it is, um, would you have liked to play in a Tommy Reese offense? Uh, I, yeah, of course. Um, you know, he and I, <laughs> funny, um, you know, even just in the time that we spent together, you know, on, on campus, um, you know, and, and over the four year, you know, or the two or three years that we overlapped, I can't remember. Um, you know, we had all, we were always talking about stuff, whether it was our system, outside system, we were always talking ball. So, I mean, he's, you know, look, his, his pedigree, um, you know, is, is, you know, uh, you know, Bill's son, you know, certainly I'm, I'm joking and a bit tongue in cheek, but just to have, just to grow up in a household like that, um, you know, the thing, his level of football sophistication and acumen and IQ is just so far ahead of most. And, and, um, you know, I, being able, it's been really fun seeing him kind of, take all of that and make it its own and really put his own stamp as to, Hey, look, this is my system. This is how I call plays. This is how I think about, you know, different scheme, right. And, and whatnot. So it's been really fun to see that all come to life. Um, I, you know, you really see and feel his personality for those that know him. Well, you know, you really see his personality, um, you know, as a football player coming through and, you know, the way that he's called games. And my follow-up to that then is um, with Brian, not in the picture anymore. And I know that, you felt like last year there was a lot of Tommy Reese in that offense, but without that veto power of Brian Kelly and the suggestions of Brian Kelly, how do you think the offense might look different this year? You know, I can't really speak to schematically what that would look like, but, you know, I, I just, I think from Tommy's perspective, right. Um, you know, similar to some of the comments that I made about, you know, Tyler early on when you asked the question about being named the starter, being named the starter early in camp and what that does for a guy's confidence and just, you know, what the what the path forward looks like. Um, I, I think it's there's a lot of similarities in how I would answer the question about Tommy, right, really being, you know, 100 percent. This is his. No, you know, I, don't, I mean, you use the word veto power, but whatever the relationship was like previously with Kelly and, and Tommy, obviously now it's 100 percent him. I think it's just, you know, he's got a level of freedom and, and creative liberty um, that I'm excited to see. But I, I think it only does good things for the play caller to have 100 percent autonomy, um, you know, and freedom and control in the system that, you know, you're 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 calling. Dane, Dane what's the challenge for for Drew Pine to stay engaged as a backup quarterback? He, he lost the competition to Jack Cohn last season and lost it to Tyler Buckner this season. How, how does someone like that stay engaged and stay involved with the offense? Well, look, I mean, I think it's, it's certainly a tough situation to be in, but I mean, he's a guy with real experience in dealing with that intra season, right? I mean, he saw meaningful minutes, um, even not as the quote unquote starter. So he better than just about anybody else on that roster knows how quickly things can change and how soon, you know, your number can be called very unexpectedly. You know, the whole idea of, hey, you're one play away and next man in, like that becomes lip service at some point. And I think guys roll their eyes at that. But that's the truth. I mean, and, and he's a guy who's lived that and understands just how quickly things can change in a moment's notice. And, you know, to his credit, I mean, it's I've been so impressed with when he's been asked to step in, you know, and, and not just manage a game, but like, hey, let's go win this thing. Right. I mean, he he's clearly competitive as all hell. Um, and, you know, that's a perfect guy you know I know he doesn't want to be in that position all all the guys in that room want to be the starter um but at the same time I mean I have no doubt that he'll continue to prepare as if he's the starter and and will be ready you know if his if his uh name is called Dane you you obviously had been on the road with Notre Dame when Jimmy was the starter 
but was there anything about that Michigan State game your first year as a starter that surprised you or that was maybe not overwhelming, but at least whelming uh, being up in Spartan Stadium and, uh, you know, a big stadium, people not liking you and that kind of stuff? Um. I mean, look, if you've got a competitive, a single competitive bone in your body, like you live for that stuff, right? For as special as it is to run out of the tunnel at Notre Dame Stadium and, um, you know, just, I mean, I'm getting chills thinking about that and talking about that. Um, that's that, that, you know, that all said, um, there's something incredibly fun and compelling about going and beating a team on the road. Um, you know, you, you, you get that us against the world mentality, um, you know, as a quarterback or, you know, offensive player, there's nothing more fun or cooler than, you know, being booed or screamed at on a big third down by 80, 90,000 fans. And then hearing a pin drop when you throw a touchdown, right. Or, you know, complete or, you know, make a big completion or whatever that looks like. So um, that's a ton of fun. I remember, you know, I had, you know, 99.9% of that game was a blast. Um, we don't need to talk about that 0.1%, but um, no, it's just, it's a ton of fun, you know, just being able to kind of go on the road, you know, with your friends and brothers. And, um, you know, I think winning on the road, there's something extra special about that. Dana, on that topic, what was the wildest road environment that you experienced during your college career? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, Michigan state was always raucous. I mean, even, you know, whether I was playing or not, you know, um, they always had, you know, a, a crowd that was really engaged. They were pumping in like the movie clips from 300. Right. I mean, they, like they, they were, you know, they had kind of their own special quirks there. Um, I mean, I, I won't name any particular schools, but I mean, we've definitely been on the road where, you know, fans are throwing batteries at you, you know, grandparents are, you know, instructing their grandchildren how to properly flip the bird. Um, wow. you, know, you see some fun stuff, you know, on the road. Um, but you know, it's, I would say, you know, all the, again, and this, you've heard this before, not just from me. I mean, that's what comes with being at Notre Dame. I mean, every school you go play home or away, um, you know, you got a target on your back, right? It's Notre Dame's coming to town, right? They, they dial it up. The, the players are dialing it up. The coaches are dialing it up. The fans are dialing it up, you know, in the parking lot, right? I mean, it's like, everybody's bringing their A game. So every atmosphere that you went to on the road, was always a bit more raucous than, you know, maybe it was the week before or the week after, but that's what makes it fun. <laughs> uh, I, I'm curious uh, if you're intrigued enough with Brian Kelly being at LSU that you're going to kind of at least watch that out of your corner of your eye. If I'm not mistaken, LSU took a run at you as a recruit. So I would imagine you maybe visited down there. Am I correct on remembering that? Yeah, no, good memory. Um, yeah, Coach Miles and his staff recruited me. Um, Coach Croton was the offense coordinator there at the time. DJ McCarthy was the recruiting coordinator. Um, but yeah, I took took trips down there. Uh, loved LSU. It was a great program. I mean, look, it's it's one of the like Notre Dame, one of the most storied you know football programs in college football history, right? And you know, obviously, um, you know, a power in the SEC, you know, on a regular basis. So. Um, yeah, I think it's really hard to be a college football fan objectively and not, you know, catch LSU games and, you know, just appreciate, you know, what they've got going on in Death Valley. And just uh, speaking of really cool atmospheres, right? I mean, that's that's probably, you know, in the top three of best atmospheres in college football. So, um, you know, I'll certainly have an interest again at, at this point. Right. Obviously, you know, Notre Dame through and through. Um, but as, you know, an objective college football fan, I'm sure I'll be tuned in and, and interested to see, you know, how LSU does this year.
Dane, one of the themes of the spring was was Marcus Freeman really making an effort to connect with with former Notre Dame football players and trying to get them back on campus. I'm curious, in what ways have you noticed that, and what what do you feel like is the the impact of something like that? Yeah, so that that is definitely um, very much the case. Um, and, and in just speaking, even with you know my teammates certainly and and guys above and and below me, um, everyone's really felt that and appreciated that. Um, you know, Hunter Biven and other former players really kind of spearheaded that from, you know, the football building side of things. But um, the level of engagement, you know, you can tell it was a very in, it was a very intentional um, campaign, for lack of a better word there. Um, you know, I actually had the opportunity to spend just a couple minutes, you know, with with Coach Freeman as in the same uh, trip that I was mentioning, you know, meeting Tyler and spending some time with Tommy. Um, and was really impressed with him. I mean, you know, I'm a huge fan of his, uh, but it was nice to be able to meet him in person. And, you know, he spent some time, you know, meeting my family and, um, you know, playing with my son. And I think, you know, made some comment about, you know, are, are we recruiting a quarterback in the class of 2042 or something like that? And I told him, you know, don't play around because we'll sign today if, if that's if that's on the team. <laughs> Um, you know, I've heard about middle schoolers being offered, but I don't know about, you know, 20 month olds. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll happily push the envelope if that's allowed. Um, <laughs> but in all seriousness, I mean, it's just, you, you can tell just the energy that he brings, you know, as a former player, right. I think a lot of what he does, um, administratively and, and, and just kind of as the CEO of the Notre Dame football program, you can see that a lot of it is influenced by his experiences as a former player. And I think as former players, we appreciate that. Um, so, you know, I'm certainly rooting for him. Um, you know, I hope that, you know, he's has a wildly successful, you know, season this year and for many, many years after that. But uh, I was a big fan of his and have appreciated what he's done to keep former players engaged because, you know, we all care and we you know want to support the current guys and, and you know, just want to be connected in ways that I know, you know, quite frankly, many other schools are so. Um, to see, you know, that bridge being, ga you know, seeing that bridge, you know, being closed a bit, um, that's really encouraging from my perspective. Well, I think uh, Coach Freeman is encouraged that Holden is already six foot at 20 months old. So <laughs> He's 99th percentile height and, you know, head size and weight. So I think he's going to have a frame. We'll just see what the rest, that he's got to gamble on the rest of it. Oh, that sounds good. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the recruiting angle. And I know that the dynamic is different because NIL is in play, but I remember vividly that 2008 class that you were a part of and how much, I guess the best way to say is glued, you know, that you were such a leader in keeping that class together when Notre Dame on the field went three and nine and you had Michael Floyd, Kyle Rudolph. I mean, all these big big recruits in the class what was that process like for you and can you maybe um relate it all to what Kean Keeley went through decommitting from Notre Dame and maybe what his experience might be like yeah I mean look I I think you alluded to it a very different recruiting landscape now than what we experienced in 2000 you know really call it from 2006 to 2008 um what i will say though and i'm flattered that you know you, on the comments that you made about me but but really that entire class we we knew we had something special and i think what was real emblematic of that class in particular was that we all just genuinely liked each other right we, we genuinely connected we were interested in how 
you know, our teammates were doing on a Friday night, right, in football season in high school, right, and kind of sending encouraging texts and reaching out to guys when you saw that they had a great game. I mean, it just – there was just a chemistry there that I thought was really, really special. Um, you know, again, that class, as you'll recall, was coming off of a three and nine season, right, the year before we got there. So, you know, in some ways, I think that could be a deterrent, and you know, to, to maybe it, players that had already committed and said, oh, God, what have I gotten myself into – I right. think our class was a very mature, special one. And, and the staff there at the time said, look, you see what's going on, right? Like you have the ability to come make an immediate impact. And so I think everybody in that class um, really rose to the occasion and was excited by that and just said, look, you know, we have an opportunity to do something really special and really shape, you know, the trajectory and future of Notre Dame football. And we'd like to believe that we made a positive impact, you know, years later reflecting on it. But um, I think that class, I mean, again, like this is not just, you know, um, you know, hyperbole for sake of a good interview answer. I mean, I, mm. there's a, I'm in a group text with 12 guys all in my class and we've quite literally talked and communicated every single day since we graduated every wow. single day. Um, my wife, Hillary wants to kill us sometimes because that's <laughs> always going off, but um, literally every day for at least the last 10 years. So, um, I mean, that's, I know that that's not, that doesn't exist everywhere. I think some of it was, you know, we all bought into, you know, what the opportunity set was when we were coming in. But I also think we just were really fortunate to have really special individuals in that class. Um, now kind of shifting gears to, you know, the recruiting landscape today and NIL. I mean, that's a landscape that I have to, you know, I'll say hand up. I don't fully understand. Um, you know, I've tried to follow and study as closely as I could, but at the end of the day, I mean, the, you know, college football in general has changed so significantly and so drastically. And I sound, you know, like the old man telling everyone to get off my lawn here. Uh, <laughs> but look, I think I, I think it, I can speak to my experience. I mean, I committed to Notre Dame. I, I committed to, you know, certainly I knew the coaches that were there, but I knew that coaches come and go. Right. And players come and go. Um, from my perspective, it was really and I think the perspective of our class, it was really committing to this idea of something that was much bigger than you, right. Um, of being able to really mark your place in history at an academic and athletic institution like Notre Dame and all that comes with being a student athlete there. And, and that was really special um, more so than just about anything else that was, you know, factored into the equation. Um, I think now it's, it's difficult because not even just the NIL, you know, piece of this, but like the transfer portal. Um, I understand that if you're, committing to a school or to a staff and, you know, that staff can leave without recourse. I understand that that's frustrating and, you know, there should be a level of agency and, and, you know, um, you know, flexibility for situations that are outside of your control, but, you know, you get to a program and, you know, maybe you're, you don't beat out the guy you thought you would, right? Like, well, you got to figure out how to overcome adversity, right. And deal with that. I think that that's just setting, you know, a bad example and precedent for, these student athletes and young men for the rest of their life. Like as soon as things get hard, you can just kind of up and leave and throw your hands up and, you know, do something else. I mean, I'm not a fan of that. I think we've got to probably meet somewhere in the middle. Um, I understand that it's a different landscape. I don't necessarily agree with everything. Um, but at the end of the day, right, this is a finite opportunity that, you know, these young men and even, you know, young women in just speaking about, you know, broader college athletics here, um, you've got a short window of opportunity to to make the most of this experience. And, and if you're fortunate enough to 
have an opportunity to go, you know, monetize that, you know, playing professionally or through name, image, and likeness. And I get that. Um, I just think we've, we've got to keep the right perspective that there's a lot more to college athletics than immediate playing time and which school is going to give you the most. And there's just so much more, um, you know, to that, that I think is being lost just given the wild West that is what we've experienced in the last, you know, 12 to 18 months. Dink, you've mentioned your family a couple of times now. Can you catch us up on what's going on in your life personally and professionally? Uh, sure. So uh, my wife, Hillary, and I have a little boy, Holden, who will turn two in November. Um, uh, Hillary works for Marriott, but specifically oversees global brand marketing and strategy for the Ritz-Carlton Hotels. Um, so don't ask me for a friends and family code, Eric. Um, but <laughs> Which, you know, doing doing great professionally. Um, I've been with Bern, I'm a principal at Bernstein. We're a global investment management firm. I work in our LA office and uh, get to work with all sorts of very talented, successful business owners, athletes, entertainers, um, and other families, helping them think through, you know, the investments that that um, you know they're taking part in. So uh, it's been great. We're we're very fortunate. We live in the South Bay in the Manhattan Beach area, um, and just very fortunate and blessed to be where we are today. Well, Tyler and I, you know, we left the South Bend Tribune on January 1st, and we are technically business owners now, although I think our portfolio is much shallower than your other clients. So we'll wait until we're rich and then we'll call you. It's all it's all relative, Eric. It's all relative. <laughs> Dane, we really appreciate you taking time to talk to us and catching up with us. It's been uh, it's been great. Anytime. Thanks for having me and go Irish. All right. Now it's time for questions. Our question segment is powered by AcrePro Midwest Farm Group. When it comes to land sales, it pays to have experts in your corner. AcrePro Midwest Farm Group are your local farmland specialists. With decades of experience in Indiana agriculture, no one knows the market better. Whether you're doing a 1031 exchange or simply buying and selling farmland, your local AcrePro agent will walk the land with you and ensure the deal is done right. Visit AcrePro.com or call 765-587-3185 and talk to your local land expert today. Again, 765-587-3185. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at TJamesND and Eric's at EHansonND. First question I have for us, Eric, is from Cheryl Russo at Cheryl R. Bunch of Numbers. What are the details of the Jarrett Patterson injury? And is Matt Bayless the problem with all these injuries since he took over the strength program? So um, what we learned today from Coach Marcus Freeman after uh, they had a full scrimmage in Notre Dame Stadium today, that uh, earlier this week, Jarrett Patterson suffered a foot sprain. That's why we didn't see him during the media viewing window on Wednesday. So what's a foot sprain? It's, uh, it's a tear of ligaments in your foot, and there's different grades of those, whether it's a slight tear versus coming completely off the bone. This one is a fairly minor foot sprain. What has been recommended is seven to 10 days of rest. And then his availability after that point will be based on pain tolerance. I, I guess the good news is Jarrett told Marcus Freeman that he feels pretty good today, but Marcus has, um, has termed him as questionable for the Ohio State game. Now, if he didn't play against Ohio State and there's not a setback I would the expectation would be that he would be available the next week against Marshall 
for the home opener. Um, and we, we also know that um, Andrew Kostafik and Rocco Spindler are the two guys rotating in uh, to be a possible replacement. And, the, and then the, the second question was, is Matt Bayless the problem with all these injuries since he took over the strength program? Well, I, I think that's kind of natural for fans to ask, is it the strength coach? Is it the cleats? Is it the playing surface? We get that a lot. And Marcus Freeman was asked about, you know, if he saw common threads. I'll say this. I mean, Matt Bayless, his knowledge of sports science and injury prevention and is incredible. And Notre Dame has incredible resources. But we're talking about a, a really physical training camp. And we're talking about a really physical game. You know, I, I think we'd have to do some research into how many of these injuries happen across football, but I don't know that Notre Dame at this point is um, has an abnormal amount of them. It seems like it, uh, but I, I, I definitely don't. I would not look at Matt Bayless as the reason that there were these injuries. I, you know, maybe cleats or maybe the playing surface seems more viable, but I would, I would also strike it up to what Marcus did and that it's a very physical game and Notre Dame is having a very physical training camp. Yeah. I mean, I, I get that people want to play the blame game a lot. I mean, I'm a Chicago White Sox fan and just about every player on their team has missed some time this year. It's like, what are we doing? How, how does everyone seem, seem to be getting hurt? But I, I don't know that it's, I, I, I would say that the majority of injuries that happen now, I'm not a doctor, so this could be a made up, this could be totally made up, but I, I don't think, a lot of them can be prevent or necessarily preventable. Um, it's just sort of a product of, of sports. And I'm, I'm certainly some are preventable, um, but I, I don't know that like a fracture would be, I don't know how you prevent that from happening. Um, well, so. I'll, I'll jump in there with Notre Dame sports technology. They can sense like a stress reaction happening so they could back somebody off before it becomes an actual stress fracture. Or if they feel like there are muscle groups that are, or tendons or ligaments that are overly stressed. And this is more goes to a hamstring pull than it would a foot sprain or a foot break. So th there are some technologies and Notre Dame uses them, but yeah, I think breaks are just, and some people are just built different. You know, I think Sean Crawford, you know, has to go look at his great, great grandmother and say, why did you not have, better genes when it comes to knees. Uh, but his great-great-grandmother also gave him this huge heart for him to be able to overcome it. So, Yeah, and I think we, we've we seen a lot of a, a number of players sort of get stuck in this injury cycle where they're coming back from something and then something else gets hurt um, or or they re-injure it. So I think that sometimes that happens. I think that's sort of natural that that it, some I, the injury prone is, is tough to label someone as, but I think – I think it does happen. I mean, there's some, some people that ha struggle to to stay healthy, and uh, I think Jared Patterson is, is is become becoming part of that list after having having a foot injury and re injuring it and and having a torn pectoral. Um, so I, I, that's not to blame him. I'm not saying it's his fault or it's Matt Bayless's fault. Um, that's just the product of of the game and the way the body can handle the things that you're asking it to do. So um, I, I think everyone is way more aware of the, the injuries to the team that they, they follow than the team that they don't follow. I mean, 
North Carolina lost lost a starting running back. Clemson's star defensive end Xavier Thomas is hurt again. Um, a lot of teams have, have have injury issues all the time. I don't know what the numbers are. It, it was, I, there's it's, there's not like a database like there is in the NFL with injury reports on a weekly basis for college football. So I don't necessarily have something that I can just Google how many Liz Frank injuries did Clemson have in the last five years. Uh, so it's hard for us to have a sort of compa- a way to compare that to, but. Um, I, I just think uh, most of it, I would imagine, is more happenstance than than some sort of um, negligible act on Notre Dame's behalf. I, I thought about asking Dane, but I we had so many other things we wanted to get to because he had a torn ACL, then I think it was a ruptured patella tendon in the other knee, and it was back-to-back years, uh, but maybe that's for another day. All right, next question is from at UND underscore Clancy. Thoughts on Patterson and the offensive line outlook if he's unable to go early in the season? Well, again, I think the prognosis is if it is, if there is missed time, it would be one game. But um, I asked Marcus about, you know, who's next in line, and it looks like they're looking at a couple. Things, and that would be Andrew Gustafic, who started a half a year at the very same left guard position last year. So he's familiar with it. And then you've got the guy everybody wants to see, and that's Rocco Spindler uh, with a ton of talent and uh, has not had much game experience um, and is going to be probably a starter on next year's line. So certainly there's talent there, but you're going from an All-American to – one of those guys, there's going to be a drop off, but certainly still a very talented player and, and in the shape of Andrew Kostovic, an experienced player. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest impact anticipating that Jarrett Patterson comes back sooner rather than later is just that this offensive line ha- hasn't been able to be working together as a unit very long because Jarrett was out in the spring they 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 settled on this alignment, and then Jared has a has another injury that takes him out of the lineup. So I think it just it lessens the reps and practice that they get, and the amount of chemistry that they can form working out there together as a team um, and as a five man unit. Um, so I think it's it's it, it makes it harder for the offensive line to reach its potential when the when the line has guys in and out of the lineup. But I think in the short term, of if you need Andrew Kristoffic to 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 pinch hit uh, for Jared Patterson, I think the offensive line will be fine. I think uh, Andrew did a, a fine job last season. Um, I think he's sort of been the the odd man out in that because Josh Lug is returning, um, there wasn't necessarily a spot in in the starting lineup for him. And I, and I think um, in most situations, he would have been a starter again this season. So I, I don't know that I've seen – I mean, we the 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 glimpses we get at practice are very limited. I haven't seen Rocco Spindler look like okay, that guy's like on the cusp of breaking into the starting lineup yet. Um, so I would be a little bit surprised if he were to beat out Andrew Kristoffic for that starting spot if that were the if that ends up being the case and ne- and necessary. Um, but but Marcus Freeman did say that they're giving them both a shot um, in, in in a competitive situation uh, as it stands. Next question is from Irish I 12 on the insider lounge. Will Logan Diggs and Joe Wilkins jr. Play in Columbus on September 3rd. Joe Wilkins is trending that way. And he's because he's ahead of schedule. I, I wouldn't 
think that he had a real heavy usage. You know, you're talking about a guy that is just getting into normal football activities. When I've watched him in practice before, he stretches with his teammates and then he goes and runs sprints for a while. But now he's in the drills and so forth. But he there's a lot of rust to knock off. Diggs, um, talked to him yesterday. He's raring to go. Um, I'm a little surprised that they're giving his blue jersey back, meaning he is cleared for everything next week. Um, but well, well, we don't know if that's Monday next week or Friday next week either. Right. And the other part of it is, you know, Marcus Freeman said today they're done with taking running backs or taking offensive players to the ground. They're not going to be as physical in practice the next two weeks as they have been this week and certainly were today. Uh, it's more of a thud tagging off than it is actual, you know, hitting somebody as hard as they can. So they're going to have to put Jordan Botello in handcuffs when <laughs> Logan's in practice, because I don't know that he understands that concept yet, but uh, uh, I think you might see a little bit of both of them, but I think in very kind of cautious conservative doses yeah if if Diggs's shoulder responds to the contact well which like you mentioned they will get some of that next week that's at least the plan then I think there's a chance we see a decent amount of him because he's been out there running around he's been doing everything but being get, getting hit um and now certainly that helps but I don't know that like getting hit you don't need to like like I don't know that that makes you more prepared or less prepared um as a running back um where other than like it's doing all the footwork drills he's doing everything else to stay sharp it's just a matter of taking those live reps and being confident in your shoulder not being not going out when you take a hit like that yeah he said he's fallen on it um and he also said he's not in pain so he feels like he's kind of over the mental part of it Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's i think a good sign yeah, and whereas Wilkins, I think, I mean, we just saw, saw him in drills on, on Wednesday. He doesn't look ready to play yet in my mind. Uh, we'll see how that progresses. There's still obviously time there. And as we've seen with previous foot injuries at Notre Dame, they can be a bit tricky. So I I, I, I don't want – I wouldn't get as as ahead of myself with Joe Wilkins as as I think I'm willing to do with Logan Diggs based on the – the uh, feedback we've received and also what we've, we've seen of them. And, and we'll get a chance to see a full practice on Friday. Hopefully that gives us a better idea as well. Next question is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. As OSU has both a good run and pass game, it seems like one of these will need to be neutralized in order to have a chance to win the game. If you were coaching the game, would you focus on stopping the run or the pass and why? You know, assuming that you can do one or the other, right. um, which is which is difficult, I would definitely go with stopping the run. And here's why. In the blueprints of beating Ohio State last year, and they lost to Oregon and they lost to Michigan, in each of those games, those teams stopped or at least severely mitigated the run. So Oregon held Ohio State to 128 rushing yards, still gave up 484 passing yards, held them under 30 points and and pulled the upset in Ohio Stadium. Michigan held Ohio State to 64 yards rushing, gave up 394 in the air. Um, you look at some of the other games where there were scares. Nebraska held Ohio State way down in a game where they almost pulled an upset 
90 rushing yards. So you kind of see a common thread. And yet um, the other part of that in the Oregon and Michigan game was their own run, running games were far superior to Ohio State's. Oregon ran for 269. Michigan ran for uh, 249. And Utah, who scored a lot of points, now they gave up a lot too, at 226. That was a 48-45 game. And Utah also did a good job of holding down Trayvon Henderson and the rest of those guys. So um, that is definitely my pick to go with stopping the run. Yeah, I, I agree that I think I agree that stopping the run would be the the preference. But I, because I think, I mean, like you mentioned, they're they're too good at both to do one or the other. Um, because if you try to overload on one thing, um, they're going to be able to take advantage of that. If you sell out against the run, the receivers will win one on one matchups. Um, and if you put a bunch of DBs on the field because you don't think they're going to be able to run the ball, Trayvon Henderson could could. Uh, gain some serious yardage there. So I think it's sort of a mix of a both. I don't know that there's one right answer to that, but I th- I do think you have a better chance of stopping Ohio state's running attack with extra DBs on the field than you would stopping the passing game with Notre Dame's base defense on the field. I don't know that Notre Dame has much of a chance of stopping Ohio state's passing attack with the base defense on the field. So um, I, I just think you're going to have to be prepared for Ohio state to pass um, and then do your best to, to limit the rushing attack. Next question is from Jedi for Life at Sco Buffs. Conventional wisdom is that OSU being the first game of the season is a bad spot for obvious reasons. New coach and quarterback, what advantages are there for Notre Dame playing Ohio State Ohio State week one? Well, I think there's an element of being a blind date. You know, they're not, they're not going to know what um, Notre Dame is going to throw them at them necessarily defensively um, with a new coordinator for the third time in three years, Uh, you know, and, and Notre Dame has done a good job of kind of disguising what they're thinking. I mean, we're not seeing form defensive formations. We're not seeing packages. I know they exist. I, I would be shocked if Notre Dame doesn't play at least a decent amount of three down uh, and, and not be an exclusive four down team. And then even on the flip side, and Dane Christ alluded to this, you know, Tommy Reese without Brian Kelly is going to be different. And and certainly he's tailored, you know, he's got different strengths in the offense, so he's going to tailor that a little bit different. I think when we talked to him recently, I think he's looked at film from all the NFL teams, and he gets a lot of ideas from that. So there's a little bit of an element of surprise that, the Ohio State coaches will have to adjust to um, on the road. The other thing is, you know, Ohio State's defense, especially at the end of the year, was getting beat up a little bit. And and I don't know that they're the most confident group, even with a new defensive coordinator. And if Notre Dame can strike early, uh, you know, maybe there's some, some of that confidence problems kind of creeps back into what they're doing. Yeah, to me, it is that scheme secrecy that that's the biggest advantage that Notre Dame has. Um, it, it, it's not a coincidence that we're only seeing the first five periods of so many practices and that our full practice viewing didn't happen Thursday when there was a full scrimmage uh, rather than Friday uh, when there will be less less action and less uh, 
uh, Notre Dame specific schemes that will probably be on sus- display or, or things that they might be thinking about doing against Ohio State. So, um, I I'm not sure that in Notre Dame's offense can bring as much unpredictability, but um, I think maybe Ohio State's defense might take some of some players that Notre Dame has for granted. I mean, maybe. Maybe guys like Braden Lindsey and Jaden Thomas end up making plays, and those aren't guys that Ohio State's going into the game fearing. I mean, they're going to go out there making sure we got to stop Michael Mayer because that's what anyone with a brain would want to do. So uh, maybe some of those guys are maybe overlooked a little bit and and can surprise Ohio State's defense. But, yeah, I think think Notre Dame's defense is going to throw all kinds of different looks at Ohio State and and, uh, try to confuse – that offensive line and CJ Stroud as, as much as it can. And uh, that's um, I think uh, everything that's leading up to this Ohio state game uh, this fall, especially as it relates to um, our media accessibility um, I think uh, is very intentional. Next question is from at drew Brennan 77. Did Notre Dame ever really look at possibly moving a game to the weekend before Ohio state? There had been some talk about moving the UNLV game. Any discussions ever happen? I think there was discussion among fans. Um, I think they wanted to see it, but I I would be surprised just knowing how thorough Jack Swarbrick is. If he didn't look at all possibilities with that talk with the coaching staff, it might've been still Brian at the time uh, to see, you know, if just different scenarios in the schedule, because they've, they've refined things before at a later date. Um, but I don't, I don't remember that being serious, uh, talk. And I still, I'm still not convinced putting UNLV at the front end of things would be advantageous to Notre Dame. I think, again, you lose the element of surprise. You lose that blind date aspect. And I would rather, I'd rather, you know, if I'm the coach, I'd rather open up against Ohio state than, you know, show my hand against UNLV. Uh, well, I would prefer the opposite. I'd rather play UNLV yeah. if I were the coach for the first game. Uh, but I have no idea if there's any discussions. I, I, that is not something that uh, I, I had looked into. Um, I, I, I think when you sign up for that game, you know September 3rd is going to be your opener. You're not Notre Dame's not likely to play a game in August um, in a week zero game. So uh, I'm not sure how realistic or how possible that that ever really was. And it would be two buys in October as well. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, I mean, I'd be curious. I know people are always there's, people always have opinions on <laughs> Notre Dame attendance and stuff like that. Which would it be beneficial to play a a, a game in uh, in August when you know the weather's going to be good versus having to uh, another game in October um, when you roll the dice maybe a little bit. I don't really know how, how the, how the, uh, the ticket office would respond to that. I don't, I don't know that a UNLV game, regardless of which week it's being played is going to uh, kind of move, move uh, the needle very much. Next question is from Nathan Reynolds at enforcers. 2117 is the offense running a whole new playbook since Brian Kelly is gone. And has Tommy Reese come up with his own playbook or is it a mixture of both? I'm just thinking that if we end up playing LSU or a common opponent, then they are going to know our plays and signals. Well, I think that's the least of your worries is having to, um, you know, Notre Dame would have different signals if they played LSU 
Um, it, Brian Kelly would have a sense of what Tommy liked to do as a play caller and what he likes to do in an offense. And yet Tommy's always trying to evolve. And I think without, you know, that's one of the reasons I asked Brian Kelly. I mean, I asked Dane Chris that question kind of in a sideways way was because I wanted to see what he thought, because I know that he's really smart in being able to see what are Tommy Reese concepts versus Brian Kelly concepts. I did a story with Dane last year and, you know, he was able to tell me what was Brian Kelly in the offense and what was Tommy Reese. So I really wanted to get his opinion. He's, he's able to decipher that, but I mean, basically Tommy Reese is going to, you know, design his offense around his personnel more than anything. So I think it's less to do with Brian Kelly and his, you know, driver's ed break that he had with Tommy and, uh, more to do with he has a really good offensive line this year and he's going to use its strength in terms of building his offense. Yeah. Uh, in this hypothetical, um, I, I almost wonder if, if the advantage would be or me more be Brian Kelly's familiarity with the personnel and, and who is the most, like, like I was saying about like Ohio state, like maybe some guys that Ohio state isn't expecting to hurt them is able to hurt them. Maybe Brian Kelly would have a better sense for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, they would change the signals for sure, for sure. If that was the case, I mean, they, they change them all the time, uh, throughout the season. If there are ever any concerns about that, um, I, I think Tommy Reese certainly had plenty of say into what the offense ran previously. So it's, it's not completely new. Um, and there will, there will obviously be new wrinkles depending on the personnel. Um, but I don't, I don't think Tommy Reese is necessarily re reinventing the spread offense either. So, um, I mean, we we haven't talked about this much and now Washington was asked about it the other day and, and really sort of played it down, but he was a coach at Ohio state last season. So Ohio state could be concerned of, of what knowledge he has, um, what, what maybe what he knows about Ohio state's offense that he can share with, with Notre Dame's defense. And, and so I think there's a, um, there's a little bit of an interesting angle there though. I'm not sure. I mean, if Al Washington did say, yeah, I know all your secrets. He's not going to come out and tell us that. So um, and I'm sure Ohio state is prepared and, and, and making sure that it's, it's not leaving itself vulnerable because of that as well. Next question is from Wayne Oosteroff at W Oosteroff. We know this team has enough talent to win at least nine games this season. What makes you confident that this staff can come together and coach this team to 10 wins or better? Well, the things I, I find encouraging that would lead you to maybe assume that would be the roster. I mean, you have not only a deep roster, now you have some inexperience in places. If you have a deep roster everywhere but wide receiver and running back, but you have difference makers. You know, you have guys that are preseason All-Americans and another group that could be postseason All-Americans in addition to those guys. There's a bunch of them. Um, I think number two is Marcus hired really good assistant coaches. I've been really impressed. Chancey Stuckey, for example, his attention to detail, the way he teaches details to the wide receivers, and they talk about this, is day and night to what they were getting before. And so even though that's an inexperienced group and a thin group, I think Chancey's going to get the most out of that group. So that would be number two. And Dana, uh, Chris alluded to the, a little bit in the earlier segment, you know, the culture, this is a team that's used to winning and is confident and, and uh, 
No, I think they've got, I, I know it's over baked, you know, saying chip on their shoulder, but I think when Brian Kelly left, there's a part of them that just said, you're telling us we're not good enough for you that you can't win a national championship with, with us. And I think they've got a little bit of a mission that they'd like to uh, show the rest of college football. So I think those are, if, if it happens that they win more than nine games, I think those will be the reasons. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would echo what you said about the coaching staff. They are an impressive bunch to talk to. Uh, the players seem to be buying in and understanding uh, what, what's being taught to them, what's being asked of them. Um, I mean, to me, I think the biggest thing that would limit Notre Dame's ability to win 10 games would be if the passing game doesn't come together. Obviously, the the concerns about the wide receivers uh, are, are well documented. Um, Tyler Buckner's inexperienced. So that, I mean, that's that's the biggest question mark going into the season. And it, I, it certainly hasn't been answered. I don't know that there would have been anything that we could have seen in this camp that would have answered that. It's going to be, it needs to be game tested. Um, and certainly will be game tested week week one against Ohio State. I, I do like the fact that sort of the bigger games, I think the tougher opponents are sort of spread out. Um, you, you play Ohio State the start of the season, then you don't play BYU till uh, a month later. Um, and then you got Clemson early November, USC late November. So I, I think the way that those are spread out is is set up in a good way to, to hopefully um, not like get into some – slide because you're playing a bunch of good teams back to back to back it doesn't the at least the way we anticipate these opposing teams to be they're not really set up that way so um and i think the later you get in the season when you're playing clemson and, and usc now i'm i'm anticipating usc to be a lot better than they were last season uh by then i, I you think tyler buckner i mean he's an experienced quarterback at that point so you're maybe not wor- worried about that i would be a little bit concerned how Notre Dame holds up injury wise, just because they're already going into the season with some guys down and got guys coming back. And it's like, okay, how many of those guys are going to be able to, to make it through the season. Um, and Notre Dame has some positions like running back and wide receiver where they can't really afford to lose many guys because their depth chart is already thin as is. Next question is from Mikey Galve. Why aren't TV networks getting into the NIL game? If you're NBC and you'll pay Notre Dame $60 million, why not also create an ND collective? In my opinion, if you're paying for a brand, it makes sense to make a supplemental investment to ensure the brand is improved. Well, NBC actually does have um, some NIL stuff going on with Notre Dame. But I think what you're asking is maybe why doesn't Notre Dame use that and do what some of the other schools are and use that as instead of saying, hey, you got nil opportunities at notre dame here's some cash up front to make sure that you attend notre dame and that's the line that notre dame's not going to cross with nil you know eventually we think that 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 part of it's going to get fixed maybe in a couple years with an act of congress uh that's not a guarantee but that's really where what different differentiates notre dame from some other schools is that they are not willing to cross the line into the illegal part of NIL and offer inducements to come to Notre Dame and offer guarantees and that they're not actually necessarily connected to name and image and likeness. Uh, So, you know, and Notre Dame and NBC can do all the things that they want, but it's not going to change that part of the NIL dynamic. 
Uh, yeah, I would just add in terms of the NIL stuff, if we're waiting for an act of, of Congress, I, we might be waiting a while. I think waiting for an act of Congress was is part of the reason we're in the situation where there's not a lot of rules and there's not a lot of guidelines because uh, I think people just thought that, well, someone else will figure this out. We need the government to figure this out for us. And that, that never really happened. So uh, that's that's why we're in this situation. Uh, but yeah, like you mentioned, NBC does have an NIL program at Notre Dame. Also, Vanderbilt and Temple were the two other schools. I'm not exactly sure what the connection to those schools are, um, but I imagine there's some sort of connection with with people that work in the at, for NBC or something, um, and, and and having attended those schools or something like that. I, I don't really know, but I'm not exactly sure what it looks like. My guess is some players might be promoting the broadcast on social media in some way. Um, I can't imagine it's a massive investment. I don't know that Notre Dame's getting kids going to get kids to come to Notre Dame because NBC is going to be paying you a little bit money once you get here. So, um, but NBC is also in the big 10 game now, officially as of today, Thursday. So um, it, it seems like NBC has, has gone out of its way to, to not be seen as Notre Dame propaganda. So I can't imagine that they would want to be uh, lining the pockets of Notre Dame athletes too much, because I think that could, that could, at least in their mind be maybe a, a negative prompt some negative backlash next question is from rockney 93 on the insider lounge was there ever any explanation given for the departure of the sports psychologist amber selking who worked with the team will she be replaced you know i think i surprised marcus early on with that question and i got one of the few word salads that we've gotten from him and and just poking around i haven't really gotten a definitive reason why other than the players really like this amber um worked with notre dame from the summer of 2017 on so before the 2017 season so it coincided with this really good run that notre dame has had for you know five years and um what I had heard is that not all the assistants were on board with this, you know, given the fact that there's been quite a turnover in assistants as well, I'm scratching my head a little bit. I, I, you know, maybe they will do this on a smaller scale. You know, every assistant, every, you know, Brian Kelly was involved. There were team meetings around this. Uh, The players had her as a resource. Maybe they'll do this on a smaller scale, but I don't believe, you know, she's, whoever they replace her with or, or bring her back will be on the sidelines quite as involved as when Brian Kelly was the coach. Yeah. We, we, uh, I, I, I do. I remember you asking that question and thinking, wow, Marcus did not, did not know that was coming. And I don't know that he knew how to answer that. Um, so, and it was definitely a fair question. Um, he, he spoke in very general terms without specific. So I, I don't really have a good answer for it. Um, it hasn't really been something I've spent a lot of time uh, trying to find an answer for. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it would be an assumption for me to guess, but I, I think like Marcus Freeman is very invested in the players um, and what they're thinking and, and sort of setting a mindset. So I don't know if maybe they feel like, well, we're doing that as coaches. What do we need someone else uh to do that for them. I, I, I don't really know. I mean, that that's probably putting too much in, into their perspective that we don't know what, why they've done that. So um, it's just something that hasn't continued. And uh, um, maybe we should ask around to see if what, what the, what the alternative or is to, to sort of supplement that, that void. 
Next question is from Charles W. Wolf. If CJ Carr decided to reclassify, what is the deadline for that decision? Well, I think Notre Dame would like to make that decision with CJ Carr by the end of this summer, but technically he could go all the way up to when he enrolls, he could reclassify then, you know, um, kind of a, I don't know if it's 11th hour, but pretty late reclassification was Lorenzo Styles' little brother, Sonny, who's going to be playing safety for Ohio State this year as a freshman. And, and there were some other kids in that class. I mean, there it seems like the ones we hear about, they reclassify pretty late. I think JT Daniels was also a reclassification at some point. Uh, so, so they have some flexibility there, but in terms of filling in and, and doing the recruiting, I think it, it makes it easier for Notre Dame if they kind of have made their mind about which class he's in by, by the end of the summer. What do you think, Tyler? Yeah. I mean, first in theory, I, I think he could reclassify anytime next spring, so long as he graduates and gets through admissions and is accepted into the school before June, um, I mean, look at Jabron Payne. He didn't. I mean, he didn't reclassify, but he didn't decide he was coming to Notre Dame until April of this past year, of this year. Um, so then he has to get admitted into Notre Dame and all the same things that CJ Carr would have to do to become uh, a freshman next year. So um, I, I don't think that the process of getting into Notre Dame would be that different. Now, obviously, CJ Carr would have to have done the work to get to a point to be able to do that. Um, and my understanding is that Carr wouldn't wouldn't need to take on a, a great workload in, in high school to be able to reach that point. Um, but I, I I think in theory what you're saying makes sense. But what I have heard is if 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 this were to happen, it wouldn't happen until the end. It wouldn't happen until around potentially December if Notre Dame has struck out at quarterback and then he decides he's willing to jump in the 2023 class. Um, I don't think um, I, I know it doesn't seem like it's something that's going to happen. Like Notre Dame is, is actively pursuing 2023 quarterbacks. And I think that is the preferred model or the preferred option in terms of how both Notre Dame and CJ feel about this currently. Um, that certainly could change as, as Notre Dame continues to go throughout this process. And if they continue to be stuck without a quarterback in the 2023 class, then it, then I then I think it could become more of an imperative to see to revisit it and say, hey CJ, are you sure you don't want to reclassify? We could really use you in this 2023 class. Next question is from at one foot down. What is the most overrated item listed below? Raising canes, Portillo's, Paul Feinbaum, Under Armour, and Utah. Why is Portillo's on that list? Uh <laughs> Josh, he was slandering. Portillo's after I after I called him out about it he said it was it was soggy soggy bread well then don't get the wet <laughs> Italian beef get the dry Italian beef I, I think it's amazing um to me it's this is really easy it would be Paul Feinbaum you know there's certain things in life I don't understand their popularity <laughs> that would be number one he seems to his opinion seemed to go whichever the went way the wind is blowing i think he was talking about what a good job he the other day brian kelly was going to do at lsu um and i can remember when he called brian kelly a despicable human being <laughs> um so i just i've never gone for his shtick 
I don't have a lot of respect for him and I've never gone on his show, although I've been asked. I just don't I don't think he has integrity. Um, and number two would be Canes. Um, I took my grandkids there. I, unless you're in love with the cane sauce, there's not a lot of variety there. Uh, you know, and I think you can get, you know, chicken anywhere that's pretty good. Um, or a lot of places it's every bit as good as canes. So I don't understand why there is a, you know, people will wait in a drive through line for half an hour to get it. But Carter Carl's was one of them. Maybe I should ask him. Yeah, I had a feeling you would say that about Canes because we've discussed it previously. Um, I I would tend to agree that it's overrated if you don't use the sauce. But to me, like not using the sauce is like ordering buffalo wings and not having buffalo sauce on them. Like you need the yeah. cane sauce to have the Canes chicken tenders. Uh, so, um, I don't, I, I don't, <laughs> my question would, uh, Under Armour's inclusion on the list, uh, I don't, I'm not sure who over, overrates Under Armour. Um, when Utah's inclusion, I assumed he meant the college football program and not the state in general. <laughs> uh, well, they are uh, ranked in the top 10. I, I, that, that was my assumption that he was right. I, I would rank Utah in the top 10 as well. Yeah. I like Utah's football program and, and Kyle Whittingham as a coach. Um, Portillo's is great. Um, I will not accept any slander uh, of Portillo's. Um, so that, that left me with Paul Feinbaum and uh, it makes me feel a little bit better um, that you came out so strongly as, as him being the most overrated on this list. Um, I don't know that I've ever listened to more than 10 minutes of Paul Feinbaum. So I guess my, my opinion would be more out of ignorance than sort of like, uh, like disagreement in any way. Um, my understanding is like his show was popular because of the callers, right? Like I thought Correct. That, so before like, he was on ESPN, it was the callers and he would let them go. So, so to me, it's like, oh, how great are you? If the best part of your show is not you like that, that right. doesn't, that doesn't speak to you. I, I mean, like I, I, like again, I, I repeat, like I am very uneducated. I don't listen to his show. I don't, I don't interact with much Paul Feinbaum content. Um, but, uh, so, so that was always that that was what came to mind to me that the, that he wasn't even the best part of his own show. Um, so you, I would think that you would be able to replicate that. Now, obviously, somehow he got he built that up to a point where he gained popularity. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think we could probably, I, I have not been on the Paul Feinbaum show either, and we could probably rule out an invite in the future if, if uh, this ever come, uh, comes across his ears, but I doubt that's probably the case. So uh, I think we're we're in solid agreement that Paul Feinbaum is the, the most overrated item on that list. And lastly, from Adam underscore Koshelski, if Marcus Freeman was a traditional appetizer, what appetizer would he be? Yeah, I'm I'm not a big appetizer person myself. Usually don't order those probably because I'm too cheap, not because I'm not hungry enough for them. But I know the one that I like to get if I get one is mozzarella sticks. And usually when you're done eating them, you say, you know what? I could have some more of those. And I think that's what Marcus Freeman is. He's the <laughs> mozzarella sticks. You're, you're like, you know what? It leaves you wanting more. You're satisfied, but you can have more of it. So Marcus Freeman, mozzarella sticks. All right. I went with Marcus Freeman as nachos. Um, I think he's a people pleaser um, or not. He's a people. Nachos are, pe are people pleasers. They're a crowd pleaser. I think. And also everyone likes Marcus Freeman. Uh, 
it 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 brings nachos bring so many th- good things together into one dish. Marcus Freeman has a lot of qualities um, that lend to being a successful football coach. Um, it's best consumed hot. Uh, Marcus Freeman's impact w- was felt immediately at Notre Dame. So uh, the the instant and, and right away impact that he made, I think, is sort of similar to uh, how nachos are presented. Um, and then we're going to find out how good these nachos taste the longer they sit there. Will the uh, will the Marcus Freeman luster go away when it comes time to coaching football games? I don't think so. Um, but that was uh, that was the logic behind me comparing Marcus Freeman to Nacho. So. I'm sure many of you were very were looking forward to our breakdown. If you have other appetizer suggestions for Marcus Freeman comparisons, please tweet them at me. I would like to hear any and all considerations um, and suggestions. I think that that was a a great question from Adam, um, and I appreciate it very much. Yeah, I liked it. All right, that's it for today's episode of the Inside Indie Sports Podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other popular podcast platforms. If you like what you hear give us a star rating leave a review and share our podcast feed with your cousins um, we'll be back next week with more notre dame football coverage as they prepare for ohio state until then stick with insideindysports.com for all your notre dame coverage needs <laughs>